Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're talking about giants, where I'm going to say this is kind of a Warhammer episode, this is going to be the way I'm going to lead you into it, and the weird thing is, this is going to talk about very modern IP laws and very ancient forgotten mythology and legends this is a really interesting episode because i'm going to have fun about my youth i'm going to talk about one of the most fun aspects of warhammer but also i'm going to lead you into something that i really think is going to get you start thinking also just to show you how much fun i'm having on this one this is actually the third take of me trying to do the intro because I kept mucking up the difference between pop culture and podcast which you would have thought by now I would have worked out. But anyway, just sharing a little bit of behind the scenes with you here. So let's start off with it. When I do the Warhammer episodes, and I've been doing these now for probably three years or so, you know, they come in every now and then, and it's very easy to talk about Warhammer 40,000. I believe, overall, it is the more popular IP compared to the if you like, ye oldie worldy one of what used to be Warhammer Fantasy Battle, then it became Warhammer Age of Sigmar about eight, nine years ago. And so the reason why Warhammer 40,000 is the easiest one to go to and why it's perhaps a bit more popular is it is sci-fi, but like nothing else out there. It is, if you like, the exact opposite of something like Star Wars, for better or for worse. But the, the thing is, it was launched in 1987 and they don't do retconning. Everybody is an unreliable narrator, which allows them to get round things. But sometimes you get something that was mentioned very early on, like in the early 1990s. An example being the Space Dwarves, also known as the Squats. They basically quietly got shelved after like the third edition of Warhammer 40,000. And yet, towards the end of the ninth edition of Warhammer 40,000, in the year 2022... So we are talking, give or take, 30 years later, there or thereabouts, they bring them back again. It's like we haven't forgotten about the space draws, we need to push them in a different direction, slightly rebuild them a little bit, so they've always been around, but now they're the leagues of Votan. And it shows you that the whole universe is sort of constantly evolving, you might want to care about various plot points and storylines, because they can sometimes have payoffs decades in the 
in the writing, as it were, or, or when the company thinks that they could make money from them, whatever. But it is a really interesting world. As I say, the L-O-R-E, the law, is phenomenal. I have real problems with the stories, but, you know, I've talked about that in the past. Instead, what I wanted to talk about this time round, though, is a real consistent through line of giants in the old world, in, in the one fantasy battle in the Age of Sigmar. So this has got nothing to do with space marines and all that kind of stuff. So there we go. And, and I do say I talk about Warhammer because, and, and therefore, you know, I end up to being biased towards one flavour of it. I don't think that's particularly fair. So here we go. But it is something that I have always had a soft spot for. So going back to the late 80s, early 90s, and virtually all of the figures in those days were made out of white metal. If you go further back into like the early 80s, they were made out of lead. And they don't like the term lead with the white metal ones because they're not actually lead, but they are dense and they are horrible to work with. Metal is a really tough material to work with, obviously, even though it's soft metal. The point is it's very unforgiving and trying to convert it. The thing I've always loved about the plastic kits when I got back into it, so my head was full of imagination, but doing something like a simple head swap when it's made out of solid metal means to clip it off is going to be hard, to glue it back on without people seeing the joints. Really difficult. You're going to have to get some moulding clay with it to smooth out the gaps. It's still becoming quite difficult, whereas in plastic you go clip plastic it just cuts off very easily and then using plastic glue it fuses it naturally together showing no line of connection so it works so much better now but one of my favorite and indeed it is considered a classic model from the very early 1990s was a giant and considering he is a multi-part kit and we're talking about obviously as a giant he is much larger and therefore his limbs, for example, are much heavier than your average Warhammer figure from the time, I was really pleased that I was able to put him together. And then I did, for the time, the best paint job I could do. The simple only character I've ever painted where I actually was able to paint a tattoo onto him. On his shoulder, there is a little heart with an arrow going through it, which says Mum underneath it. But of course, obviously, at giant scale, he's substantially, substantially bigger than, let's say, a wood elf firing a bow, who also is unlikely to have a tattoo of Mum on it. But anyway, if you want to see the epitome of my confidence when I was a teenager, when I was first into that particular game and sort of world, that is the figure and it was big it sort of towered over all the other figures now over the years there's been a very slow drift in scale which you know if you compare it 30 years on quite a big drift in scale but what's interesting is that giant i still use on the tabletop today because he's only slightly shorter than the plastic kit of giants and he absolutely does look like a giant and when i first brought him into my local warhammer store there were lots of oohs and ahs because it is just that classic figure which apparently goes for a lot of money on eBay nowadays. Not that I'm planning on selling him. Like I say, lots of emotional connection with this particular thing. I'll never let go. I promise. So, that was where it started. The thing was, there was a rule in the game that fast-forwarding 30 years is still in the game it's one of the things that made them fun and and this is the if you like one of my problems as i said before about warhammer 40,000 is 
when you hear the people playing it or the people sort of talking about it on like various Warhammer channels, even the official people, you know, they call them like space soldiers and they go, oh, you know, having a battle here. And, uh, and it's fun. The point of every game is to have fun. And yet it's so humorless, all the the lore, if you like. Nobody seems to be having fun. I mean, it is, after all, called Grimdark. After the grim darkness of the future, there is only war. Well, the opening lines to explain it, and this does a very good job of explaining it. Whereas with the fantasy battle, because it was kind of, well, it's obviously influenced by both Dungeons and Dragons role-play game and also Lord of the Rings, and there's just a bit more fun and light-heartedness there. And while it eventually evolved into its own thing, you've got entire armies, something like the Skaven, where they're rat men, and basically they're always going, yes, yes, and things like that, and they're called things like Scrit and Scratch and things like that. There's a sense of humour to them immediately, as opposed to, yeah, like I say, the other stuff in, in 140,000. And the giants were the kings of let's have fun with this stuff. So the rule that has existed in one form or another for 30 years is called timber, or you should, because it's got an exclamation mark at the end, TIMBER! And it's very, very simple. So... Obviously, when a giant is charging towards the enemy, it could be cut down, but obviously there's a lot of it. And so at the end, there are variations to this rule over the years, but basically what it boils down to is when this giant goes down, he could, in theory, start crushing the guys who actually killed him. So basically, you roll the dice, the opponent rolls the dice, and if... I roll higher than my opponent, even though my giant is dead, it collapses onto his force and they take further damage. If he rolls higher, then the giant topples harmlessly over backwards and doesn't crush any of his troops. So you can see that just that little rule adds a wonderful bit of flavour and makes the giant feel more gigantic on the on the table. It's like in every other creature, when they die, they just die. There are a few creatures in both forms of rules that, or vehicles that when they die, they have a chance of exploding. But that's a sort of more magical and mechanical thing. But yeah, of course, a giant, when it collapses, would be a terrifying thing to see so those were the giants now this is why i can bring in ip because they're not called giants anymore they're called gargants and the reason for that is because and it's for a while back in the 1990s games workshop did actually create its own historical figures you could play celts versus roman legionaries for example and that makes sense but the problem of course is you can't own the IP of a Roman legionary that doesn't belong to anybody. Again, I've mentioned this in passing before. One of the popular reasons for historical movies, TV shows, etc. is again, nobody owns the copyright of somebody like Henry VIII or Queen Elizabeth I, and therefore you've just already got a baked-in amount of people who are interested in what your take's going to be on this history. Now, they can get very sniffy and grumpy about it, but the point is nobody owns Henry VIII or Napoleon or Julius Caesar. And so, while that was quite popular as a game, Games Workshop quietly shelved it because it ultimately wasn't going to, you know, they're putting time, energy and money into something that they couldn't necessarily control. Other people could absolutely create their own versions of this. This is why the most popular World War II simulator called Bolt Action, that's not made by Games Workshop and is basically something through Warlord Games where they create some of their own models. They know that there are only so many different things they can control even themselves. You know, somebody could 3D print some Tommies from World War II, etc. Anyway, that's a whole aside. So the giants are now called Gargants. Everybody in the shop when we play calls them giants. 
But then, a couple of years ago, they produced an even bigger kit for the Mega Gargants. Or Gianty Giants, I guess, would be their name. And they are definitely even bigger. Now, disappointingly, I've mentioned them in the past, the Warhammer Cit has Citadel Miniatures Games Workshop. These are all under one name. Basically, Citadel Miniatures is the one that makes all the models for Warhammer, even though it's still owned by the parent company Games Workshop. But there's a very specialist version called Forge World. They make everything in resin, really hard to work with. They make all kinds of different types of very specialist, very niche models. They don't do a lot now in Age of Sigmar, but they did for a time do something called the Bone Grinder Gargant, which is the tallest giant of all, and therefore I was rather disappointed when the Mega Gargants came out. They weren't actually as tall. They were tall. They were big. They were bigger than the giants, but they weren't as tall as the Bone Grinders. Like, why? If you're going to make your biggest giants ever, make them at least the same size as Another version of the giant which I could already buy from your sister company, which you also own. You, you're in complete control of the production of that company. So I'm glad I've got a bone grinder gargant as well. But the mega gargants are a thing of beauty. And indeed, my youngest son, who always likes the kind of the ogres and giants and gargants and things like that, he bought one and he had a lot of fun with it. And then I, years later treated myself because they made an even newer sort of enhanced version uh, there's a king Brod, the sort of the king of the mega gargans which is an amazing figure with just this massive basically he's holding a tree trunk that he's converted into a mallet or there's another version of it where somebody's taken basically one of the stones from stonehenge and that's the head of their sort of like weapon it is remarkable and glorious and and the thing is they're just dripping in detail you can add extra bits to them all the time i love the fact they just come with arrows so you can basically cut off the end of the arrow and just stick it into the gargant skin so he looks like almost like a hedgehog peppered with arrows but he's still charging at yeah you know there's lots of i mean i did a very mild conversion with the king broad i won't go into the details but i fiddled around with him because he's of a, such a scale he's easy to manipulate and change and add other bits to and things like that i had so much fun building him you know choosing my style and take then painting him and then obviously playing with them and again sometimes the giants have these as well another i don't think this existed way back when i had the metal one but a rule that's been around certainly for a very very long time just for the gargants giants is stuff them in a bag and basically you can't do this against an enemy's big you know creature because it's not going to get into a bag but you can instantly grab one or two average troopers yeah your, your average peasant guy with a sword and sword and shield what would stop a giant from just grabbing one of them and stuffing them in a bag this jump up and down you can cause a little mild earthquake there are all these sort of fun things that you can do stagger as well though back in the day with the original ones there was alcoholism rules and basically they could get drunk and accidentally like not turn up or go in the wrong direction you know, made it more random and a bit more annoying, and I'm pretty sure that the, the professionals wouldn't want something that random. But if you want to have fun, and again, that's the point of any game, of course you're going to want a drunk, staggering, giant, meandering round the battlefield, stuffing things in a bag. You know, you can just, from those rules alone, you can just tell they're oozing with character compared to, like I say, you know, it's all very straight-laced with all these sort of different stratagems and things like that. But it's it's... There just isn't that sense of humour in Warhammer 40,000. People might turn around to me and say, yeah, what about the orcs? And I have said before, they seem to be the only people enjoying themselves in Warhammer 40,000, but they're the exception that kind of proves the rule. Anyway, 
that is the the world of, of Warhammer and giants and gargants and mega gargants. It's just sort of getting bigger and bigger. Like I say, that kind of size creep is sort of happening. It is really interesting seeing the very early original, like early 1980s Games Workshop giants. They're ludicrous. They're barely taller than your average little character from that time. But of course, that's as much as their casting could do at that time. So there was a huge jump between the early 80s and the late 80s. And then there was an even bigger jump between the early 90s into the late 90s, because by the late 90s, the vast majority of stuff being produced is now plastic rather than metal. And there's also fine cast as well, but that's sort of resin, etc. You get the idea. So if you look through my Twitter, I'm at Gemdaduch on Twitter, let me know what you think. You'll see me post stuff. You know, you're going to have to scroll through a lot of things and you'll see lots of different figures that you painted, but you will occasionally see ogres and a, and a mega gargant and things like that. Just had glorious amounts of time, fun and time with them. Have a look and you can see just, I'm going to say you can even tell that the, the sculptors are just more into it than some of the other characters sometimes although i have to say the consistency of quality casts and sculpts are exceptional when it comes to the world of games workshop that's why they're number one in the world you know they do put the effort and energy into supporting the games yes but also creating new sculpts and these sculpts are beautiful and when i buy sculpts from other companies they're not as good although i am also happy to agree that sometimes the sculpts are just too fiddly you know it's like this is going to be on a tabletop people are going to be standing you know two meters away from it i don't need to know that he's got two water bottles one slightly smaller than the other one nobody's going to see that and yes the pros can paint them in a ludicrously precise way that's less than one percent of the entire hobby base that paints so sometimes i'd rather have a little bit less detail than more detail but again that works on a scale of a giant works perfectly Okay, fine. I I digress a little bit. So let's now move into the more historical, mythological side of things. Fee, fi, fo, fum. So just to be clear with the IP thing, they changed giant to gargant, which means gargant is a made-up word. Therefore, that is something that you can now trademark and nobody else can call them gargants. Okay, so that's the idea. Mega gargant, etc. It's the same thing with, like, Space Marines. Technically, nobody calls them Space Marines anymore. They're Adeptus Astartes, which, again, is something that can be trademarked by Games Workshop. That is very modern considerations for stuff. But what I find fascinating is when I said mythology earlier on, you might be going, okay, so here's the thing. I'm going to say there are two main mythologies that you know if you live in Europe, and that is... First of all, the ancient Greek slash Roman mythology. You know, if I said to you Zeus, you would know that he's the king of the gods. If I said Hercules, which is the anglicized version of Heraclius, you'd know a really strong guy. Achilles, great warrior, watch out for those ankles. So, you you know, the, the point is these stories, because they were around for literally centuries in Greece, and they were picked up and respected and spread by the Roman Empire, means that you've got more than a thousand years spreading across entire continents and beyond of these stories so that even when you get the introduction of something like christianity they're just not going to take away all those stories they're so good they're sort of the sort of things where and people recognize they existed before christians that they kind of survived and hung on so 
number one mythology that everybody kind of is aware of in Europe and the West, shall we say, and so obviously include America and all of this, it's going to be the ancient Greek type stuff. Then I'm going to say probably it's going to be the Scandinavian mythology. You know, your Thors, your Lokis, your Odins, etc., the Valkyries, all this stuff. Again, it's like... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This before in previous podcasts, it's so popular, there's literally superhero movies about some of these gods. If you know a little bit more, then probably we're going to go to Egypt. Now, the Egyptian mythology and legends obviously predate the stuff from Greece by millennia. But the problem was that Egypt was then taken over by the Romans. And it's not that the Romans tried to wipe them out, but when the Egyptian war god Horus, for example... To the pagan Romans, it's sort of like, okay, you call the war god Horus, we call it Mars, and the Greeks call it Ares. So it's 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 getting diluted. It's not being ignored, but if you like, the iconography is going to lean towards the rulers. And then after the Roman pagans, the Romans become Christian, and Christians really don't want people praying to multiple gods. So they are actively trying to push away the ancient Egyptian myths. 
And on top of that, obviously the ancient Egyptian myths are written in hieroglyphs, and that is ultimately forgotten by the early 2nd, 3rd century AD. So people just aren't writing them and can't read them anymore. So that kind of preserves them almost in amber. And then after the Christians in Egypt, we then get Islam, which again does not want iconography of religion and also doesn't want pagan gods being promoted. So this sort of like multiple layers ended up suppressing it. But then in the 19th century, the hieroglyphs start being cracked again and we start hearing these names like Horus, who we haven't heard of for like 2000 years. So this remarkable uncovering archaeology, if you like, of these myths. And there may be a few of them, the sun god Ra that you're aware of. So that's going to be very much mythology number three if you've got a third one. Maybe you come from a very different, you know, your, your family comes from a very different part of the world, in which case you might be dripping in Chinese mythology or Japanese mythology. You know, I've got to see this from at least a Western point of view. If you're in America, maybe you have been paying attention to some Native American traditions in your area, although it is worth pointing out that the different tribes are going to have different mythologies, so they don't all agree. But... What I find fascinating is all of those I've just mentioned, and hopefully you've been nodding along to them and you're aware of them. But the thing is, I'm in Britain, and Britain has a mythology that has been basically eradicated. And this allows me to talk about this brilliant book. So actually, another link to Warhammer. There's a new manager, a little shout out to Andy in my local Warhammer store. Very nice guy. We were just idly chit-chatting, you know, getting to know each other in terms of which bits of the hobby we liked. And I was moaning about how I'm not a fan of the Black Library's books in the world of Warhammer. And anyway, we we started talking and he said, oh, you know, I, I like this book, I like that book. You know, I'm, I'm not one of these people who just only reads Warhammer or anything like that. So I promised to give him a couple of my books, by the way. We'll see what he thinks of those. But he said, from what you're saying, Jem... You know, Storyland by Amy Jeffs, that is your cup of tea. And boy, was he right. Because what Amy Jeffs has done, and this is a huge shout out, anybody who is listening to this podcast, if you like this podcast, just, just generally, you're going to love Storyland, a new mythology of Britain by Amy Jeffs with J-E-F-F-S. So just type in Storyland, Amy into Amazon or wherever, you'll get there. But what it is, is it's a collection of the ancient stories of Britain. Now, this is where I'm going to just sort of do one segue. Another mythology we, of course, all know, although you may feel very uncomfortable me calling it a mythology, in which case I apologize, is the Bible. And the interesting thing about the Bible is right after the whole Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel stuff, and just before the Noah stuff, this, this is all happening in Genesis, you get one throwaway line about giants. It says in Genesis 6-4, so that's chapter 6, verse 4, it just simply says, Now giants were upon the earth in those days. The giants themselves are never mentioned again at all in the Bible. Yes, David fought Goliath, who was a giant Philistine, but he wasn't a giant in and of himself. We have no description of the giants. The giants aren't integral to something like the story of Abraham or Moses or anything like that. Jesus is not bumping into giants in the Bible. That's one line. So, you know, if you're a good Christian who believes the literal word of the Bible, you have to believe in giants. Okay, fine. So, 
that's another element of Giants being. And I want to say Giants certainly weren't created by Games Workshop. They certainly weren't created even by, you know, the, the likes of, of the Bible. They're everywhere. Giants are a standard creature in mythology. To, to give you a slightly different version of a giant, the Cyclopses were a big deal in ancient Greek mythology. Basically, they found ancient archaic Greek structures, which were huge monolithic structures, and they figured, well, you know, we're the height of civilization, so those clearly couldn't have been built by humans. Spoiler alert, they were built by humans. They must have been built by a race of giants, and for some reason they decided to have one eye, and they were cyclopses. There's a famous scene in the Odyssey, that's the sequel to the fall of Troy, the Iliad, where Odysseus, that's why it's called the Odyssey, is just trying to get back from the Trojan Wars back home to Ithaca. And at one point, he and his crew are captured by a cyclops, and they kill it by getting a tree trunk and basically sharpening the end of it and putting it into fire and then shoving it into the cyclops eye so i mean that's sort of double damage going on there a horrible description in the odyssey there but as a tween as it were back in the day i loved that bit of the story sidebar on on cyclopses the reason why cyclopses seem to have been a standard thing as opposed to just a giant giant is because well look at an elephant skull. If you don't know it's an elephant skull, it basically has this huge single eye socket in the middle of the of the face. So obviously that's where an eyeball goes. Now, we happen to know that's where the muscles for the trunk are anchored onto the skull, and actually the eyes obviously around the side. But if all you see, and obviously it's got bits of tusk sticking out as well, so it looks like the, the head of a slathering cycloptic monster with big teeth ready to tear you to, to pieces which shows you why you might need more than just one bone to describe a whole animal because boy did they get that one wrong but it makes sense please i encourage you to google an image of an elephant skull and you'll see exactly why you would think well that's obviously evidence of the cyclops so look all this kind of stuff i'm sort of zinging around all over the place but i just want to go back to these scandinavian stories and legends and sagas because and again, I've said this before, they are obviously pre-Christian. This is the pagan civilization of Scandinavia. But they were written down by monks in the sort of high Middle Ages, like the 1200s, something like that. Specifically in Iceland seems to be where they captured most of these stories. Hence why they're called the Icelandic sagas. And that's what was happening with British stories as well. Clearly, these stories are from either the Dark Ages, in inverted commas, so just after the fall of the Roman Empire, kind of at the very beginning of the Anglo-Saxon era, or they could possibly be even earlier than that. Now, these are stories, these are mythology. There was no Thor, there was no Zeus, but it is fascinating hearing these stories sort of like being brought together by Amy. And what she does is she tells the story. Basically, she gets people like Geoffrey of Monmouth and Matthew Paris. These were sort of like medieval writers who captured these stories. Now, how much of it did they change to suit their own Christian narrative? Unknown. Same with the sagas, if you like. How much this has been fiddled with? But this is clearly an oral tradition that has been captured. In the case of Geoffrey of Monmouth, he says that he's actually taken some of these stories from an earlier text, which doesn't seem to exist anymore. We also get bits of this in things like Bede's writing as well. So 
None of this is historically accurate, but it's really interesting. And giants are all over the place. So what I'm going to do, and I hope Amy Jeff doesn't mind this, I'm actually going to I'm going to read out a bit of some of these stories and, and what it is. And the reason why Storyland's so great is basically each story is maybe six pages, and then you get her little explanation of like what's going on at the end of it, and then she moves on to the next one. And sometimes they're linked, like. Did you know why Albion is, you know, an old term for England or all the uh, Isles of, of Britain? And the answer is, we actually don't know why it's called that. But according to this, Albia was a Persian princess which ran away from the court with her sisters. And they went to Britain and obviously named it after her. And she then, she and the sisters, like, lay with devils and demons and gave birth to creatures, feral creatures. <laughs> That's how you get British people. <laughs> A, proving that, proving in inverted commas, that we've always had immigration. And B, we are all the children of demons and dark things and stuff like that. Pretty accurate description, actually. And then after that, Brutus, who was another Trojan, of course. It is interesting how with the Romans, you all know about Romulus and Remus and how raised by wolves, yada, 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 and they sort of founded Rome. Yeah, except round about the time of Caesar Augustus, the first emperor, basically, there's a new myth brought up by Virgil called the Aeneid. And the Aeneid is basically, again, the retelling of the Trojan Wars, but this time a prince from Troy called Aeneas leaves and founds Troy. So you've got two completely different ways of founding Troy, completely counter... You know, they, they're, they're contradictory. They cannot both have happened, but the Romans happily believed in both of these things. But basically, it links Rome, which knew it was the new kid on the block compared to the likes of Babylon or Athens or whatever. So, you know, their civilization was younger, but more powerful. So what do you do? You link it to an old story. So, okay, yes, of course, Aeneas, uh, we're, we're part Trojan. Yes, we all definitely came from Troy. Yeah, right, whatever. And it's the same again with Britain. Exactly when that was brought in, unknown. But you've got Brutus, not that Brutus. He is a prince from Troy coming over and cutting a long story short, comes to Britain he actually fights a giant while well, he and his forces fight a whole army of giants and slays all of them apart from their king called Gogmagog and basically ties Gogmagog down and taunts him and stuff like that but also starts intermarrying with the the daughters of Albion who obviously named this place and then you've got all the Britons there who are all the sort of descendants of Albia but this is how you get the term Britons after Brutus again no absolutely not did not happen but it's interesting how they're making these connections. As always, any mythology, any legend, which is in theory timeless, is telling you very much of the times it was written. There's sort of like this feeling that we need to link back. But what I want to do is actually read out the very first story called literally The Giant's Dance. Amy, I hope you're okay with this. The giant's home, the hot, excessive regions of remotest Africa, belong to the southernmost part of the map south of the Nile. I'm going to sort of skip a few bits here. There the great beings aboard the night's lingering heat, not to mention each other, for they had blood like lava and tempers to match. Aeons before the flood, in the dryness of the desert, they cracked the stones from a rock-faced unchanged since Yahweh wrought the land. The largest of the group drove wedge into a fissure. She struck once, twice, three times with her hammer. When the wedge had struck, she inserted another, striking until the stone groaned in her arms. 
Her as a skin which was ember hot was now the yellow of sand, now blue like the mudstone she cradled. Without acknowledging her companions, who were driving in their own wedges and adding to the din, she heaved the rock onto her shoulder and walked away. Sweat hissed from her brow and dust desiccated her throat. But she journeyed for the rest of that night, pursuing the trace of a chill on the breeze, a whisper of colder climes. She drank deeply from the rivers at daybreak and slept until sunset each day, disguised as a hill or a sandbank. She did not disturb the creatures around her, herds of deer with swiveled horns, beings that shaded their faces with one enormous foot, or villages whose inhabitants' faces were located in their chests. Each night she bore her load onwards. Once or twice she saw a city. The other giants followed with their heads bowed and their rocks resting on their backs. When they came to the great ocean, they felt the water like a balm. They traveled for weeks, plucking whales skywards for food as they passed the gates of the Mediterranean. As the giants waded, the heat abated, and soon they reached a part of the ocean where the clouds hung low and the cold winds blew on even the warmest days. Then the lead giant saw an island and stepped from the seabed to reef to cliff top and onto the moon-illuminated meadows. Deep greens and blues rippled on the skin as the giants followed, striding over marshes. In the late days, the Irish called it Kilaros, and even later than that, they said it had never existed at all. On its summit was a plateau, pillowed with time and veiled with cloud. When the giants assembled, moisture beaded, they were in harmony. It was conducive to their bodies, their place of moss and mist, the unnatural accord their task allowed would last a little longer. They placed the stones in circles and topped them with flatter stones. Then they dug pits in the midst of the central circle and watched as the rain that came and went pooled there, flowing over the rocks. When the stones were erected and the baths full, the giants encircled their structure in a great ring, a carol of dance. One by one they dipped their heads below the water. Minerals entered and soothed their veins. All their hurts subsided. They would be enough for now. The island was full of valleys and hollows, perfectly suited to the solitary ways of giants. When they had washed, it was to these that they retreated, returning to their dance. Years later, there came a flood. Many of the giants' original number were swept away for good, but their healing temple endured. The Irish called it the giant's dance, perhaps on account of the stately formation of its colossal stones, perhaps because the mist preserved some memories of a unique meeting. The stones stood there for many thousands of years. When at last they were moved, it was by the power of a child. So, that is alluding to another story. That is describing the creation of Stonehenge, which we know that the blue stones come from Wales. It was erected by a Neolithic man in southern England and has absolutely nothing to do with Ireland. But basically, according to this, African giants who had lava for blood went all the way to Ireland to cool down. Boy, did they pick the right place where they erected Stonehenge. And then later on, Merlin, yep, that one, basically magics Stonehenge to England for reasons but yes giants are all over the place and just like i described the ancient greeks thinking that these old structures had to have been built by giants or cyclopses same too particularly after the fall of rome you get these sort of like early stories in the anglo-saxon era where you know there are sometimes very large structures created by roman concrete and stuff like that which the Anglo-Saxons have got no idea how to reproduce. They were creating their own beautiful semi-timber buildings and structures. They had their own form of architecture and art and culture, but they didn't know who built them. So again, giants were used as an excuse. When you see something like Stonehenge, it's very hard not to believe it's kind of magical. You know, it's like you built that before the era of cranes. 
and, you know, articulated lorries and things like that. Well done, you. What, you mean you rolled it all the way from Wales? So, anyway, the, the point here is that Amy Jeffs just does a brilliant job. Like I say, she, she gives you a, a poetic story like that, which also sounds very Tolkien-esque, because Tolkien, again, was pulling from these ancient sagas and Beowulf and things like that. You can actually buy a Tolkien translation of Beowulf. So it is these kind of very ancient pagan myths. And I so encourage you, because if you're kind of fed up of Thor's or Lord of the Rings or another story about Hercules or whatever, Storyland reveals a series of myths that, quite frankly, in their own country should be better known but aren't, because things like Merlin, for example, seems to be sort of a sort of druidic figure which now gets turned into a wizard later on, and yeah, he basically is a link to pagan Britain before Christianity, before even potentially the Romans, and so he is remembered, these echoes are sort of remembered, but Arthur himself is very much medieval. His references are things we can all relate to, castles, knights, etc. None of that stuff existed in the Iron Age in Britain. So, Amy Jeff's done a marvellous job. She's got another book which are revealing sort of like further myths or further fragments, which I'm definitely going to check out at some point. But first things first, Storyland, a new mythology of Britain, is weirdly exotic. But the strange thing is they're describing the country that at least I am living in. So I'm not going to go any further. As always, look, you do the usual thing. Click subscribe. Amy, if you ever hear this, big fan, well done. Bravo on the research and the writing. You do a beautiful job of writing poetically and then writing factually. You are great. But also, don't forget Warhammer. And maybe you want to play with some giants and do timber. Even if you lose, you can win with that move. Anyway, I will leave you there. And as always, another episode coming soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.